Support for the Bowery Boys is provided by Ballet Next. Be prepared for a blast of fresh air when Michelle Wiles' Ballet Next returns to New York Live Arts, February 19th through 23rd. Look out for the debut of a crop of new dancers handpicked from the University of Utah's ballet program, at which Wiles is currently a visiting professor. These stars in the making will join Wiles and principal guest artists to perform two new ballets by Wiles and two ballets choreographed for Ballet Next by Mauro Biconzetti, all set to live music. Tickets are 90, 25, and $10 for students and seniors, and available at newyorkliveArts.org. New York Live Arts is located at 219 West 19th Street in Chelsea. The Bowery Boys episode 282, Whitmania, celebrating Waltz, New York, and Brooklyn. Hey, it's the Bowery Boys. Hey. Support for the Bowery Boys is provided by our listeners. Join us for as little as a dollar a month by visiting patreon.com slash boys. Hi there. Welcome to the Bowery Boys. This is Greg Young. And this is Tom Myers. And today we are celebrating all things Walt Whitman at Whitmania, a short <laughs> history of the poet, the author, and the journalist with a focus on his years in Brooklyn and New York. And welcome to a live Bowery Boys recording. We're honored to be recording today as part of the Brooklyn Podcast Festival live here at the Bell House in Gowanus, Brooklyn. Hello, lovely audience. Oh, thank you. Obviously, we wanted to call this originally the Whitman Sampler, but we thought that that was, like, too obvious and maybe a little old-fashioned. Yeah. But seriously, his life and career were remarkably varied. Uh, He was a printer, he was a reporter, he was a publisher, he was a teacher, and all before the age of 20. And he's credited with changing American literature and finding a new, very specific American voice with the 1855 publication of Leaves of Grass, a manuscript that he would rework and rework and rework and rework and rework and rework for, like, the rest of his life. Now, as most American high school students can tell you, or at least the ones who've been paying attention, the impact of Leaves of Grass on American poetry was enormous. He completely broke with conventions uh, of the time, and he wrote poetry that celebrated the human spirit and the human body, verse that had a sexual energy to it that was totally revolutionary and actually totally taboo. And he lived his life in a rather revolutionary way as well, hanging out with the Bohemians and maintaining a number of same-sex relationships a century before Stonewall. Whitman lived more than half of his life here in Brooklyn and also in New York. And today we're going to pay special attention to the years that he spent here. How did Brooklyn and New York City make Walt? And how did Brooklyn and New York change American poetry? These are big questions that are bigger than the two of us. So fortunately, we're going to be helped out later in the show by NYU professor Karen Carboner, who teaches and writes about Whitman and is organizing the 2019 Whitman Consortium celebrating the bicentennial of Whitman's birth. 
There are tons of events and amazing things to take part in, exhibits, and we'll get to those at the end of the show. We're also going to be joined by Brad Vogel, who's the executive director of the New York Preservation Archive Project. He and his colleagues are working hard to actually preserve some of the, the most important Walt Whitman remaining sites in New York and Brooklyn. And we can't talk about Whitman without reading some of his poetry. So we'll be helped out there by Jason Koo, a Brooklyn-based poet and author. In fact, Greg, why don't we kick things off with a reading right now. Ladies and gentlemen, let's hear it for Jason Koo, reading from Crossing Brooklyn Ferry from Leaves of Grass. What is it then between us? What is the count of the scores or hundreds of years between us? Whatever it is, it avails not. Distance avails not and place avails not. I too lived. Brooklyn of ample hills was mine. I too walked the streets of Manhattan Island and bathed in the waters around it. I too felt the curious abrupt questioning stir within me. In the day among crowds of people, sometimes they came upon me in my walks home late at night, or as I lay in my bed, they came upon me. I too had been struck from the float forever held in solution. I too had received identity by my body. That I was, I knew, was of my body. And what I should be, I knew I should be of my body. It is not upon you alone the dark patches fall. The dark threw its patches down upon me also. The best I had done seemed to me blank and suspicious. My great thoughts as I supposed them, were they not in reality meager? Nor is it you alone who know what it is to be evil. I am he who knew what it was to be evil. I too knotted the old knot of contrariety, blabbed, blushed, resented, lied, stole, grudged, had guile, anger, lust, hot wishes I dared not speak, was wayward, vain, greedy, shallow, sly, cowardly, malignant, the wolf, the snake, the hog not wanting in me, the cheating look, the frivolous word, the adulterous wish not wanting, refusals, hates, postponements, meanness, laziness, none of these wanting, was one with the rest, the days and haps of the rest, was called by my nighest name by clear, loud voices of young men as they saw me approaching or passing, felt their arms on my neck as I stood, or the negligent leaning of their flesh against me as I sat. Saw many I loved in the street or ferry boat or public assembly, yet never told them a word. Lived the same life with the rest, the same old laughing, gnawing, sleeping. Played the part that still looks back on the actor or actress, the same old role, the role that is what we make it, as great as we like or as small as we like or both great and small. Closer yet, I approach you. What thought you have of me now, I had as much of you. I laid in my stores in advance. I considered long and seriously of you before you were born. Who was to know what should come home to me? 
Who knows, but I, I am enjoying this. Who knows, for all the distance, but I am as good as looking at you now, for all you cannot see me. We've never followed actual poetry before, Tom, so um, this will be a slightly less poetic than that. <laughs> but we're going to begin the story of the life of Walt Whitman uh, in Long Island. Uh, Walt Whitman was born on May 31st, 1819, 200 years ago this year, in a hamlet on West Hills in the town of Huntington, Long Island. Now, Tom, did you know that you can actually still visit Walt Whitman's house today? Oh. The birthplace is actually in Huntington, and it's actually across the street from a shopping mall. Oh. Uh, really? And it's literally next door to a men's warehouse. Like, like literally right there. So it's well, not the right environment. Well, he was a snappy dresser. <laughs> now, he was named Walt because his father was named Walter, uh -huh. and Walt grew up in a huge family with many brothers and sisters. When he was four years old, though, the family moved to Brooklyn, the village of Brooklyn. Yeah, and this was in 1823. Um, so what was the village of Brooklyn even like in 1823? It was still very agrarian. There was, uh, you know, it was a lot of farmland, but most of the activity was around the waterfront. The famous Fulton Ferry, which connected Brooklyn to New York, that's referenced in the poem, began operation just a decade before they moved there. Then the interesting thing about Walt's biography in general that I find really inspiring is he moves to Brooklyn as a boy, when Brooklyn is very, very small, when it's just a village of about 5,000, 6,000 people. Then as he grows up, he sees Brooklyn grow up over the decades so that you know, by the end of his, near the end of his life, it's one of the biggest cities in America. So he, you know, he's not just from Brooklyn, he, he grows and evolves with it. His family is actually very instrumental in the growth of Brooklyn because his father got into the real estate game. Did you know, like, he built modest houses. Like, that's kind of how they made a living. Yeah, I even read that he would build the houses, the family would move into the house until it was sold, and then they'd move to the next house that he was building. <laughs> This is not like a housing scheme that you could do in downtown Brooklyn in 2018, but, uh, but it worked it at the time. It worked definitely back then. Now, when Walt was a teenager, the family moved back to West Hills, but Walt actually stayed around. He actually moved to New York, the separate city of New York, and worked there, living in boarding houses all over the place. And he worked most notably as a newspaper apprentice at a couple local newspapers. So Walt is a teenager living alone in New York City, mm -hmm. um, which at the time in the 1830s is a separate city. And a city of like incredible temptation. Be imagine being young in New York at that time. And for Walt, it was also, you know, because he was doing newspapers, he was, the city was experiencing a printing revolution. Newspapers were being published and sold at an exhilarating pace. Right, this was the era of the penny press. Um, and in fact, you know, the Sun, the New York Sun started publication in 1833. Uh, the Herald started in 1835. Was, yeah. he, was he writing stories for these newspapers? Um, I mean, he started to dabble in writing at this time, but mostly he was working as a compositor or somebody who would set movable type into a machine, which is this 
arduous job that would, of course, come in handy later when he decides to publish his own stuff. Now, it's exciting because, you know, we talk about all sorts of events of New York City history, and so it's exciting to put Walt in that context. For instance, he was in town during the Great Fire of 1835, which burnt most of lower Manhattan, so a very, like, thrilling, intense, dangerous time to be in the city, which unfortunately cut into many of his employment options. Right, because it burned, among other things, the printing district. Mm -hmm. Um, so he's out of a job, he's running out of money, so what does he do? Well, he essentially does what many do in this situation, which is moving back home with the parents out in Long Island. He does, he heads out to rural Long Island where he takes on a series of school teacher positions, believe it or not, a job which he famously detested. Yes, we don't have time to talk about that, but let's just say it didn't work out for him no, well. No. Um, he quickly grew tired of teaching, so we're going to jump forward five years to 1841. Uh, Wald is 22 years old when he decides to move back to New York, this time to be a novelist. Um, now, he had already developed a, a name for himself as a reporter and working at those different newspapers, so he, he wasn't starting from scratch. He had connections. He published his first short fiction, mostly in the first half of the 1840s, and many of the stories actually came from his own personal experiences. So, being young in the city, were these like good experiences? Was it good times, or, or, or what? Um, well, let's just say that the name of his first story was Death in the Schoolroom, <laughs> in which the teacher accidentally beats a student to death. So. <laughs> I mean, that's almost Edgar Allan Poe-ish. We're like kind of rubbing against that territory here. But it certainly underscored how he felt about that period in his life when he was teaching. Um, <laughs> those stories led to him getting his first book deal the next year, and his first novel uh, was about the dangers of alcohol. It was called Franklin Evans or The Inebriate. And it actually sold well. It sold 20,000 copies. So he was a best-selling author in his 20s? Right. Yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> but what I want to know is, was he actually like into temperance? Which seems a little strange to what, who I might understand about well, him. Well, he probably was, actually. At this time, um, he, was, you know, he would later make denigrating jokes about this period and about that first work. Um, but it seems that at this period, he was actually like a supporter of the temperance movement. So this fiction is going on as he, he's also developing his journalism, I assume, at the same time. Parallel. Yes, he needed to pay the bills, and he had all these connections in the city's newspapers, So, which by the 1840s, the newspaper industry was once again flourishing. Papers, of course, all of these new papers, they all needed copies. So journalists like Whitman, uh, they worked for a long list of competing newspapers. That wasn't unusual. So he worked for the New York Aurora, the New York Statesman, the New York Sunday Times. It's so exciting that there used to be that many newspapers. Like, but this is just New York. This wasn't even Brooklyn, which of course had its own papers. Right, no, so he was living in New York City until 1845 when he moved back to Brooklyn uh, where it would be allegedly easier for him to find a job and it was cheaper to live. Those were the days. <laughs> he was... Things change. <laughs> he was almost immediately uh, writing editorials for the Long Island Star and the next year he became the editor-in-chief 
of the Brooklyn Eagle. This was a role that he would continue to have uh, until 1848. The offices were down on Old Fulton Street uh, near the ferry. The Brooklyn Eagle period in Walt's life was a really celebrated period of his life. It was one of, it was a period where he was editorializing about all aspects of daily life in Brooklyn, in, in a very rapidly changing Brooklyn, in Brooklyn's most prominent newspaper. So the daily life in Brooklyn in the 1840s. So mm-hmm. that's like back when you had like cows in the bike lane, essentially. Right. Like they, back they, in the olden times, right? Yes. Um, he wasn't actually editorializing about that, but he was, he was seriously rallying for some kind of a a park in Brooklyn, uh, which didn't have one. The, the, the city was growing too quickly. Actually, on March 23rd of 1846, he wrote an editorial entitled, quote, are we never to have any public parks in Brooklyn? <laughs> he got to the point. Now, in that, he was lamenting the fact that Brooklyn Heights um, had been developing very rapidly without any public promenade. He wrote, quote, A beautiful promenade might yet be made of the Pierpont ground and the tract immediately adjoining it toward the Fulton Ferry, taking part of Columbia Street and up to the street above, planted with trees and a fine walk made on the verge. It would even then be one of the most beautiful public grounds in the world. Later on, he says, on the other side of town, the elevated range called Fort Green is just the spot for another public ground. It is far better than that miserable piece of a place contiguous to the Navy Yard, which will never amount to anything, (laughs) whatever amount of money is spent on it. And lo and behold, two years after he wrote those pathetic words, Washington Park was created, later named Fort Greene Park, and that would open in 1848. Well, we need to mention, of course, the park's most prominent monument because he also had a say in that, which is a memorial for American prisoners who died aboard the British prison ships during the Revolutionary War. Yes, and he wrote extensively about that as well in his editorials, um, and his efforts there led to the creation of the prison ship Martyrs Monument in Fort Greene Park. So that is amazing. If he were running for public advocate, I would sign his petition, absolutely. (laughs) He's hitting his groove here. I love this. So then why did he leave this job? It sounds amazing. Um, Well, I mean, he took positions on lots of different issues, Um, even on huge national issues of the day, such as the expansion of slavery. Now, at this time in his life, Walt was a, quote, free soiler. And that meant that he was opposed to the expansion of slavery into new territories, but he wasn't necessarily against slavery on moral grounds. Still, his political positions, liberal as they were, put him at odds with the Eagle's owner, who was a pro-slavery Democrat. And so in 1848, he was fired. And so then I assume he just heads off to another newspaper. He actually headed off to another city. He went to New Orleans to help create and launch a new paper called The Crescent. When he was in New Orleans, he fell in love with the city, the color, the energy, the vibrant culture. But he also encountered for the first time really the horrors of slavery and the slave markets. He only stayed three months there. It seems that he also got fired because he was too liberal for those owners as well. (laughs) So he packed up his bags and he moved back to Brooklyn. 
So what, he's like about 30 years old now, mm-hmm. and great journalist, but is he a poet? I mean, is he, is he starting to dabble in poetry? Absolutely. He is writing poetry, um, and in fact, by the late 1840s, he was experimenting with different kinds of forms of poetry, less conventional you know, in terms of subject matter and also in terms of the structure and form. He was also changing personally. Um, in how he presented himself and in his opinions and attitudes on a number of subjects, he opened up as well. It was a period of transformation for him. He was sort of becoming Walt Whitman. Yeah, we find a new Whitman here starting in the 1850s. I mean, in, when he's in his 30s. I mean, this is, you know, this is when Whitman finds himself. It's not only that these New Orleans experiences changed his outlook, but he's becoming discouraged by what he's seeing in politics, both locally and nationally. And he starts writing political protest poems during this period, this period of profound political corruption. Right, because this is now the era of Tammany Hall, on top of all of the other big national issues, like slavery, that are affecting the nation. I mean, I almost said protest songs instead of protest poetry, but in a way, I mean, they're, they're kind of like the same. Like you think of the 1960s in Greenwich Village, the bohemian scene, Bob Dylan, Joan Baez, and in a way, that's kind of what's happening with Whitman in this period. He's beginning to loosen up, you know? He's, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, it's, it's, it's New York. It's being in Brooklyn that's helping him to loosen up, finding himself more attracted at, in more ways than one, to uh, the nightlife on the Bowery and down there on Bleecker Street, you know, scenes that we might consider kind of proto-countercultural. So he's kind of coming out. And, and this kind of demonstrated, actually, the, I think the best way is to, to look at his dress, how he's actually presenting himself, because he becomes a little bit more blousy, I guess, is one. I don't know if that's like the right word. But, um, you know, because he was very conservative. He was a very conservative dresser in the 1840s. And then, starting in the 1850s, he begins to mix, mix and match a little bit. Like, it's rural, almost farmer's clothes that he would have seen his, his father wear with those of European intellectuals with hats and, you know, unbuttoned shirts. There's actually this 1860 portrait where he looks positively smoldering. Uh, uh, I can only say he looks like he's like straight off the streets in Bushwick in 2018. Mm-hmm. He's got open shirt, like wild hair. He kind of looks like an antebellum George Clooney, actually. <laughs> he's just like very like, wow, you know? And we will be posting that photo <laughs> on BoweryBoysHistory.com. <laughs> And on antebellum Tinder. Anyway, <laughs> now, you know, uh, it's not shallow to discuss this because it's a kind of a physical embodiment of what's going on with him creatively. So, right, what exactly is going on with him creatively then in the 1850s? So, while he's working at a print shop in Brooklyn, he's also writing for newspapers, and he's also beginning to write a set of poems unlike anything that he's written, and honestly, like anything that anyone has ever written. He's very inspired by Ralph Waldo Emerson, who essentially was trying to like encourage other American writers to create an American voice and to break from those uh, European traditions. And so over the course of several years here, Whitman produced a set of poems which he would compile 
1855 under the name, would publish it under the name Leaves of Grass. And by publish, you mean that he went out and he found a book publisher? Well, and he didn't have an agent or anything like that. It was more like he self-published. And at, actually, at a Rome Brothers print shop uh, located in the area of today's Cadman Plaza in downtown Brooklyn. He paid for it, set the type himself. It was a true labor of love and was self-distributed. Obviously, a very modest launch for something that would actually eventually come to define 19th century literature. And of course, throughout his life, I mean, this was his baby. This would be the thing that would, that would embody him the most. And so of course, it would be ex expanded and revised and revised throughout his entire life. This past week, I actually spent an amazing afternoon in the Berg Collection at the New York Public Library on 42nd Street. They have a number of original copies of the 1855 and the 1856 and the 1860 and the 1860. And you they, get to flip through them? And very, very carefully, right? <laughs> you have, it turns out, you know, a little turning aid. You don't touch it. Um, <laughs> I made that mistake. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, so uh, they're, they're incredible. And so during the whole period here, in 1855, yeah. when this comes out, he's living in Brooklyn. He's living in Brooklyn. Yeah, during the publication of that first edition in 1855, he's living in a house near the Brooklyn, the reviled Brooklyn Navy Yard, uh, actually on 99 Ryerson Street. So he would, wa he would walk to and from some Ryerson Street fans out there. Um, we're going to have more on Ryerson Street, actually, a little bit later. Uh, he Stick would walk around. to and from the Rome Brothers printer every day. And... This house remains the only surviving home that Whitman ever lived in, in New York or Brooklyn. And we're going to talk a lot more about that later. So anyway, that self-published book, well, it wasn't well distributed, shall we say, although he did send a copy to his idol, um, Ralph Waldo Emerson. And in fact, the following year, Whitman would make a second pressing of Leaves of Grass and would throw in a big positive quote, like so Emerson liked it, so he decided that he was going to put an Emerson quote on the spine of the book. It said, like, I, I greet you at the beginning of a great career. So it's like, it's like, it's like, you know those posters where it's like, best picture of the year, five stars. So it was kind of the... Yeah, he basically invented the poll quote. <laughs> yeah. Um, and he didn't ask for permission either. No, no. What about Walt's social life? Um, where does one even go in the 1850s, you know, to hang out with a more creative crowd? Yeah, um, well, I want to mention an important figure in Whitman's life, which will pertain to, your, to that question. A man named Henry Clapp, Jr., who was an American who self-styled himself into a so-called king of Bohemia in the 1850s. He moved to New York and he opened an establishment very much in the style of the Parisian Salon. It was a beer cellar called Fafs at Broadway, just north of Bleecker. Now we're gonna to speak to Brad in a bit to discuss what it was like at Fafs and why it's sort of important to New York and American history. But essentially this became Whitman's home away from home following the first publication of Leaves of Grass. Foss was also a place where he could really kind of break out, essentially. He started maybe acting on some of his same-sex attractions at Foss. Clapp, by the way, I just had to mention this, would go on to publish a literary newspaper called The Saturday Press, 
which was probably best known not merely for touting the work of Walt Whitman, of course, but for a short story that ran in 1865, which would later be renamed The Celebrated Jumping Frog of Calaveras County, the very first major publishing success of one Samuel Clemens, Mark Twain. So they're like intersecting lives, icons. So really, truly something to clap about. I promise you that was much better than the other clap joke that Greg wrote. <laughs> now, it's a family show. I mean, it was contagious. It was funny, you know. Um, The third edition of Leaves of Grass um, came out in 1860. This one was published actually by Thayer and Eldridge in Boston. This was a really fun edition um, with nearly 70 new poems, 70 new poems, but also all kinds of fun fonts and typefaces, whimsical um, illustrations. It's really a beauty and somehow looks kind of modern to me. So it goes from like a slim, like self-published volume in 1855 to like in 1860, it's like a more robust volume. It's kind of like Walt himself, more robust. <laughs> yeah, he wasn't just adding new poems, but he was also reworking the ones that were already in them, changing them, tweaking them, changing the titles. Everything changed. Did you say, though, that, wait, did, where was that published again? Boston. Boston, so it wasn't published in New York. Or no, or no, no, no. It was published by a real publishing house in Boston. And, you know, ever the control freak, Whitman went up to, to Boston to oversee, to the best of his abilities, the typesetting, the layout of the pages, and whatnot. Here in Boston, he would also visit with the city's most famous literary dean, his friend Emerson, who famously suggested to Walt that he tone things down a little bit in that next edition in 1860, especially those racy Children of Adam poems. So these were the like his risque, sexy poems, right? These are the right, the yeah. like really like kind of out there for the period. So I mean, did he cut them? Uh, no, he kept them in, um, as well as the homoerotic calamus poems as well, which we're going to talk about in a few yeah. minutes. So, but he couldn't live off the poetry yet. He, so how was Walt making a living during this period? Bitcoin. <laughs> no. Um, he was still working as a reporter, and he was working in the newspaper trade. He was selling stories. In 1861, he actually wrote a fabulous collection of essays about Brooklyn history called Brooklyniana that were published in the, in the Brooklyn Standard. Has anybody read those? Those are great. <laughs> They're great, and they really go back to him like talking about all of... Um, well, it's Walt's take on... Brooklyn and New York history, mm -hmm. um, in, including, in fact, um, the story, his alleged telling, this, the time on July 4th, 1825, when the Marquis de Lafayette was coming through town and stopped through Brooklyn, picked him up in Brooklyn and kissed him on the head. <laughs> um, it's clear, though, when you're reading that book, that he would really be into this event today, <laughs> yeah. because... Uh, Walt was all about Brooklyn and New York City history. Yeah, history and beer and bohemians. I think he would have fit right in. 
I mean, I think he's here somewhere now. It's like, anyway. Um, but we're talking about the 1860s, so obviously we're talking about the Civil War. Yes, so the war broke out in 1861, and Whitman's brother George joined the Union efforts. Now, Walt was already in his 40s by this time, so he contributed to the war effort in another way. He actually visited injured soldiers who were brought back to New York. He was sort of like a father figure or a father time figure or a mad poet figure who was wandering the, the halls of the hospital and soothing these injured men coming back who really enjoyed his company. One day, Walt was reading a roundup of the injured soldiers uh, that had been printed in the, in the Tribune, and he saw a reference to a man who was injured named G.W. Whitmore. And this man had been injured in a battle in Fredericksburg, and he feared that this was actually his brother George George Whitman, and that there had just been a typo. So he raced down to the battlefield to find his brother. Who was um, alive? He was alive. Okay. He was slightly injured, um, but he was fine, so this was not a reference to him. But now Walt is outside of Brooklyn. He is down visiting his brother, seeing all of the injured on the battlefield. And this was a kind of traumatic experience and, and very dramatic for him to see not just the injured, but also he, he walked by a mound of limbs that had been amputated, really just the horrors of the war. So at this point in 1863, he would actually leave Brooklyn and move to Washington to, to dedicate himself to the war effort and to address the needs of uh, the wounded soldiers, mostly by visiting wounded soldiers in the Washington area hospitals. It's worth pointing, as he's leaving Brooklyn in 1863, and he would go back and he'd visit family and stay for a couple months at a time, but he was, for the most part, leaving for good. He would never live permanently here again. The city that he left was so different from the city that he had arrived in. Um, that, that city that he arrived in the 1820s was a city of about 5,000 people, and when he left, now, it was the third largest city in the United States with a population in Brooklyn proper of about 275,000 people. Yeah, that's incredible. The, what was he doing in D.C., though, for a living? Well, he, he still, aside from visiting wounded soldiers, he, he had worked connections to actually get a job. Um, so he did land to make some money and get a steady paycheck. He landed some government desk jobs, which, by the way, worked back then when the federal government w was open and, <laughs> and people were getting paid. Um, unfortunately, though, he kept losing those government jobs because of his dirty reputation. Um, he was that guy who wrote those dirty poems. I mean, times have really changed the kind of reputation that would actually get you a job these days <laughs> in government, I think. Well, eventually, he wound up working in the Attorney General's office, and this was a very busy time uh, personally and professionally for him uh, because he started, he started a relationship that same year with Peter Doyle, who was a Confederate horse car conductor uh, who was only 18 years old at the time. That same year, he published Oh, Captain, My Captain in a collaboration of poems uh, about the Civil War and about Lincoln, it would also be included in his next edition of Leaves of Grass. So, I mean, again, he's just like cranking out new editions here. I mean, he's, I assume he's, uh, 
this is happening because he's becoming a more prominent writer in yep. his career, right? Yeah, he's becoming more prominent both here and he's becoming more prominent abroad uh, because the next year in 1868, the poems of Walt Whitman came out. It was published in England and that really helped him develop his, his audience and a following in Europe. All right, so now we gotta, we got to get to our guests here. So unfortunately, we're going to have to like zoom through the final two decades of his life. Yeah, the, the final chapter of Whitman's life takes place primarily in Camden, New Jersey, uh, right across the river from Philadelphia. Now, he moved there in 1873 uh, from D.C. to live with his brother, George, after Walt had suffered a terrible stroke. Um, he would actually end up staying there the rest of his life, but even buying a house in 1884, a house that you can actually go visit today. It's a landmark. Uh, he spent most of this period cultivating his image and legacy and further revising Leaves of Grass. It's so fascinating to me that just he keeps like working on this, that this is like, it, his body and soul is contained in this work. He would actually publish three more editions of Leaves of Grass, continuously reworking it. He was trying to perfect his life's work in that last edition that came out in 1891, which was even referred to as the deathbed edition. He would f make his final appearances in New York as a celebrated literary star, working on the lecture circuit, which is like, a great way to make a lot of money if you are a celebrity, uh, reading, reading your works, reading from, from Leaves of Grass. And uh, so those were his final appearances in New York. And then meanwhile, back down in Camden, he would receive notable visits from visitors from around the world, including Oscar Wilde, who visited him twice while he was living down in Camden. Wilde would later be quoted as saying, the kiss of Walt Whitman is still on my lips. That's some wild stuff. <laughs> now, for years, Walt prepared his own mausoleum, um, anticipating the end. He died on March 26, 1892. Thousands of people passed through his home to pay their respects. And he was buried four days later in a cemetery in Camden, New Jersey. So let's go back and let's hear some more poetry from Jason Koo, uh, some more Walt Whitman. As I ebbed with the ocean of life, as I wended the shores I know, as I walked where the ripples continually wash you, Pomanoc, where they rustle up hoarse and sibilant, where the fierce old mother endlessly cries for her castaways, I musing late in the autumn day, gazing off southward, held by this electric self out of the pride of which I utter poems, was seized by the spirit that trails in the lines underfoot, the rim, the sediment that stands for all the water and all the land of the globe. Fascinated, my eyes reverting from the south, dropped to follow those slender windrows, chaff, straw, splinters of wood, weeds and the sea gluten, scum, scales from shining rocks, leaves of salt lettuce left by the tide, 
miles walking, the sound of breaking waves the other side of me. Palmanach there and then as I thought the old thought of likenesses, these you presented to me, you fish-shaped island. As I wended the shores, I know, as I walked with that electric self seeking types. As I wend to the shores, I know not. As I list to the dirge, the voices of men and women wrecked. As I inhale the impalpable breezes that set in upon me. As the ocean so mysterious rolls toward me closer and closer. I too but signify at the utmost a little washed up drift, a few sands and dead leaves to gather, gather and merge myself as part of the sands and drift. Oh, baffled, balked, bent to the very earth, oppressed with myself that I have dared to open my mouth, aware now that amid all that blab whose echoes recoil upon me, I have not once had the least idea who or what I am, but that before all my arrogant poems, the real me stands yet untouched, untold, altogether unreached, withdrawn far, mocking me with mock congratulatory signs and bows, with peals of distant ironical laughter at every word I have written, pointing in silence to these songs and then to the sand beneath. I perceive I have not really understood anything, not a single object, and that no man ever can. Nature here in sight of the sea taking advantage of me to dart upon me and sting me because I have dared to open my mouth to sing at all. Jason, what was that from? That was from, as I add, with the ocean of life. <laughs> Thank you. So now we've had an overview of Walt's life, and we're about to address his literary legacy and the Brooklyn sites that you can still visit today. We'll get to all of that after this. On April 19, 1995, a federal building in Oklahoma City was destroyed in a domestic terrorist attack. Just days after the bombing, America discovered the perpetrator was right-wing extremist Timothy McVeigh, whose mindset and values are still very present today. It's an American tragedy, but one I still remember very vividly. But there is so much more to the story than what you might remember. Take a deeper look into this moment of history with the podcast Homegrown OKC hosted by Jeffrey Tubin and based on his book. The Homegrown OKC podcast is about better understanding the political environment in our country today. In particular, I found fascinating all the original archival footage used in the show, sounds which brought me back to that time, but with a richer understanding of events. These episodes were thrilling to listen to. That's Homegrown OKC. To listen, search for Homegrown OKC in your podcast app. That's Homegrown OKC. In the decades before the Civil War, slavery's grip on America tightened. But soon, a diverse group of abolitionists, both black and white, 
began to construct a clandestine path to freedom for the enslaved. Hosted by Lindsey Graham, Wondry's podcast, American History Tellers, takes you to the events, times, and people that shaped America and Americans, our values, our struggles, and our dreams. In the latest series, American History Tellers explores the Underground Railroad, a covert network of secret routes and safe houses operated by men and women committed to helping enslaved people escape bondage in the South. Fugitive slaves and anyone helping them face terrible violence and even death if caught. But for those brave enough to risk the journey, the Underground Railroad offered a path to the northern states in Canada, where their freedom was assured. Follow American History Tellers on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge this season's American History Tellers, The Underground Railroad, early and ad-free right now on Wondery Plus. Let, um, I think it's time to bring on to the stage our... So Jason's going to stay up with us for the rest of the show. And let's bring up Karen and Brad. Yes. Um, yeah, so we're kind of... These three individuals represent three different aspects that we want to talk about, which is sort of academics, history preservation, and of course Jason represents... Art And so I just, you know, I, I want to ask what, what your relationship, Jason, is with, with Walt Whitman. How has it influenced your work? Like, how does a 19th century poet reflect into your modern work? I mean, Whitman to me is, is everything. I remember reading Whitman in high school, and I, I kind of hated him. He was, I'm sure a lot of you did too. He's kind of boring. But then, uh, <laughs> I don't, the second time I read him uh, in college, I don't know what it was. Maybe I was just older and smarter. <laughs> And more receptive, but it just it just destroyed me. I mean, I think if you read the 1855 Leaves of Grasses, which, which is what I would recommend if you haven't read Whitman before, it's just this completely untethered sort of world consciousness that just comes at you wave after wave. I mean, it's it's just like the only th word I can think of to describe it is an, an unleashing. Not many people know this, but the the original Leaves of Grass didn't have a did, none of the poems were titled. Uh, and no one had seen poems like this before. I mean, this was the, the, the original free verse that we now write in today. Uh, I mean, and he hadn't written anything like this before either. I mean, this is a completely unlikely, totally unexpected. This guy, that if you read his poems before 1855, they're terrible. Uh, and then and with, with no seeming... Signs suddenly in the, the 1850s, I don't, I don't know where he was hiding these poems, but in 1855, this book comes out. His name is not on the title page. It just says Leaves of Grass with that badass picture of him uh, <laughs> next to him. And he's like, here it is, America. Uh, and he really thought that America would love this poem and he would just be like you know, Kanye West today. And that didn't quite happen, but... Uh, just the, the swagger of that is incredible. Not to put your name on the title page. Imagine doing that today. No one would do that today. But it's not just the form. It's the, the poems themselves, especially the poem we now know as Song of Myself. That to me, that poem is, every time you read it, I've probably read that poem over 50 times now. It's, it's always amazing. It always seems like you find something new. Uh, I mean, it, it almost seems as if 
nature itself is is speaking to you? That probably sounds corny. It sounds immediately corny to me now that I said it. But, uh, that's how you feel, I think, when you read it. So yeah. uh, I don't think yeah. that's corny for this oh. group. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. Thanks so much for yes. your reading today. Um, Karen, if, could we just talk a little? Could you school us a little bit here? Yes. Because uh, you yes, teach please. this to, you know, I would imagine eager college students um, who are absorbing the city as well um, at NYU. We're gonna talk about the Whitman Bicentennial in a second and all the exciting things um, surrounding that uh, that people can take part in. But just a little bit of Lit 101. Um, why are we here? Why are we 200 <laughs> years after he was why born? Yeah, why are we celebrating why, it? Why is this work worthy of this celebration? It's such a good question. Um, I think he was the original bad boy of American literature, and we all like the bad boy, right? He, he broke all the rules, right? He started a cultural revolution by breaking every rule. And I think that just grabs everyone's attention. You know, as, as Jason said, he, he's the father of free verse. He, he's, he begins writing unrhymed poems when everyone else is rhyming poems. He actually talks directly to the reader. He's a listener up there. He actually talks to you, so you feel connected with him. Mm. You know, he's preaching equality at a time when the country is at the verge of civil war, as, as you all were introducing this. It's a, a lot like our own moment, right? He's living through a series of corrupt presidencies, not to get political here, and uh, you know, a lot of tension, racial tension, and here he is trying to sew the nation back together with poetry. He decides poetry can do it, right? And I guess for me, you know, just following up on Jason's really candid remarks on what he likes. I love that Walt is a doer, not just a writer. So, you know, as I was saying, he tries to sew the country back together with poetry, but during the Civil War, he literally sews people back together because he's a volunteer nurse. Yeah. Um, and was he, he affected, I mean, by the Civil War? Did he look at Leaves of Grass a little bit differently after the Civil War? Because it seems like much of it's kind of optimistic, right, about humanity. For a lot of people, there are really two different Walt Whitmans, the antebellum, the pre-war Walt Whitman, which he's very eye-centered. You know, he is exuberant about New York. He's feeding on the culture here. Um, he's getting so much energy from street life and street clothing and, and everything else. It's a very egotistically driven uh, type of poetry. But then after the war, there's this empathy that comes from nursing those soldiers. So you see him really open up really differently um, after the war. Now you just mentioned um, like the relationship that he has with New York. I mean, the, he is a, a writer who is intimately connected with the place that he's writing. I mean, how does it really play out throughout the course of his career? I mean, how does New York as a place and Brooklyn as a place, how do those emerge from his works? It feels so good to talk to Brooklyn about this because <laughs> he's really Brooklyn's poet you know he um, for Whitman Brooklyn represented a certain neighborliness it was a, a philanthropic place where he could grow as an artist he really got bedrocked in Brooklyn and then Manhattan across the water right a sister city but kind of separated at birth sister city was giving him 
totally different stuff, right? He was on fire from what he saw in Manhattan. And, um, you know, he dropped out of school at age 11, so he didn't have the same sort of mentorship that Hawthorne and Longfellow and Emerson and all those guys going to Harvard and uh, Bowdoin, you know, fancy pedigreed poet poets. This was Walt Whitman grammar school dropout, right, who mm -hmm. got an internship, basically, at a print shop, and guess what? Fell in love with language as a printer. So the magic of being in a city that's becoming itself, right, and Brooklyn was becoming itself and Manhattan was becoming itself, that's what gave Leaves of Grass its fire, right? The book could not have been made anywhere else. Turning to something not quite as much fun for a second, though, just Whitman and his racial attitudes. Um, I kind of briefly mentioned, you know, that he was a free soiler at that period when he was writing editorials at the Eagle, um, but then that his racial attitudes would change. What happened there? This is a really hot topic right now in academia about Whitman and race because there seems to be a division between the way in which he projected himself in the poetry, which was a liberal, all-inclusive view, and the way in which he wrote about people in the prose, often in, the, in these anonymous newspaper reviews. So I'll give you an example. As you were saying, he was free soil um, through 1848 and then kind of started bending more liberally towards abolitionism. And what really seems to have done it is in 1848, when he went down to New Orleans, he saw a slave at auction, and it was very striking to him. Um, and he actually writes about that scene in a poem called I Sing the Body Electric. If you're thinking about fame, you're, you're right there. That's the same thing. So the poem expresses this joy of, of equality, right? And he writes in Song of Myself of these leaves growing amongst black as amongst white. But sometimes in the prose, especially these anonymous newspaper reviews, he would bend towards common beliefs and sounds unfortunately less liberal than a lot of us would like to hear our Walt. Um, it's hard to explain something like this. You know, I think it's a conundrum that a lot of academics have to work with. Did he do this to sell newspaper copy, it's possible because this was not a poet who had a lot of money. He was relying on stuff like the journalism to get him through, so maybe he was doing it to further his way that way. Another thing that people say is everybody kind of sounded racist back then. You know, if you, mm -hmm. if you read some of the things that Abraham Lincoln said, who also started Free Soil and kind of veered over, same as, as Walt, um, it's shocking to our modern ear so I, I guess I'm going to just leave a question mark because okay. it's a really interesting, complicated question. But there, you know, he maybe had a different idea of how he was projecting the ideal and the real. Mm. Today we associate Walt Whitman, I mean, we, some, we, we group him in with the LGBT community, although those were terms and expressions that were not known uh, in the 19th century. But his sexuality and sexuality in general, but his in particular, you know, informs the work. Do we know, like, specifically or a range, like, when he knew that he was gay, and how did he get away with so many kind of really, like, almost erotic, just incredibly sort of, like, hot, 
like physical passionate <laughs> expressions, right? In so many of his poems. Such a juicy question. <laughs> Thank you for asking. Yes. Well, one way to look at this is that to remember that the word homosexual doesn't really come into modern usage, like common usage until the late 19th century. So Whitman's really writing all of this before a word is around for what he feels. Um, and I could read a poem about this. I don't know if we have time oh, for that. I think we have time for that. Do we? <laughs> Do we have time right. for it? <laughs> okay. um, uh, just, to, just to preface this one, so Walt doesn't, I, I think he feels, he, he loves men, right? He obviously, maybe today we would easily just say he was gay. But I think he really enjoyed that moment that he was living in historically where there was no word for what he felt, right? He was slippery. There's, there's a lot of gender fluidity with Whitman that is so modern that my students are even shocked by it. Well, right? and, and in that 1860 edition, when Emerson says, tone down right. the language, he was referring to the sort of what we would see today as straight language, right? I mean, he was not so much re referring to the gay stuff that we see today. That's a really funny thing, that back then it was quite common for same-sex folks to just express affection, right? You would link arm in arm, women spent a lot of time with women, men spent a lot of time with men. So those poems that we talk about, the Calamus poems, that sound so gay to us now, right? So homoerotic. People didn't really mind them as much as the Children of Adam poems, which express heterosexual love and desire. That was much more outrageous. In fact, it's really funny that the dalliance of the eagles was banned. This is a poem about two eagles kind of twisting around and possibly mating. And it was banned in Boston in 1881. Why? I guess it's the national symbol, right? And you don't want to show the national symbol doing the dirty deed. Um, but also just like the, the, the <laughs> sex, right? Traditional sex was seen as really touchy. So the Calamus poems kind of slipped under the radar. N today, they are amongst people's most favorite poems that he's written, right? They are truly from the our heart. And for me too, I, the, the poem that I would like to read is yes, Calamus please. 9. Um, so he comes out in 1860 with clusters of poems in that book. And a cluster of poem is just like a grouping that he kind of has a loose idea about. And the Calamus poems are all about homoerotic love in different forms. Calamus 9, it's a favorite because I've used this in class and I've had students come to grips with their sexuality in class after reading this poem. It's such a, a powerful read, but I'll, I'm gonna let it speak for itself. Calamus 9. Hours continuing long, sore and heavy-hearted. Hours of the dusk, when I withdraw to a lonesome and unfrequented spot, seating myself, leaning my face in my hands. Hours sleepless, deep in the night, when I go forth, speeding swiftly the country roads or through the city streets, or pacing miles and miles stifling plaintive cries. Hours discouraged, distracted, for the one I cannot content myself without, soon I saw him content himself without me. 
Hours when I am forgotten. Oh, weeks and months are passing, but I believe I am never to forget. Sullen and suffering hours. I am ashamed, but it is useless. I am what I am. Hours of my torment. I wonder if other men ever have the like out of the like feelings. Is there even one other like me? Distracted, his friend, his lover lost to him? Is he too as I am now? Does he still rise in the morning dejected, thinking who is lost to him, and at night awaking, thinking who is lost? Does he too harbor his friendships silent and endless, harbor his anguish and passion? Does some stray reminder or the casual mention of a name bring the fit back upon him, taciturn and depressed? Does he see himself reflected in me? In these hours, does he see the face of his hours reflected? So, well, thank you, Walt. <laughs> yes, thank you, Walt. So um, I want to uh, pivot a little to Brad because I'd like you, Brad, to speak a little bit more. I mentioned the, the place Foffs, yes. um, which is this beer cellar that had a huge influence on his life, but relates very much to sort of his burgeoning sexuality here. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us a little bit more, uh, go a little bit more in depth than, than what I did? Sure, yeah. So Foffs, it still exists today in some form. You have to look under the sidewalk on Broadway, but it's essentially this vaulted space down under the sidewalk on Broadway. And this is in the late 1850s when Broadway is just this burgeoning thoroughfare. I mean, everybody and everything is going by. This is the sort of heart artery of the city. And so Whitman is there, of course, wanting to be on the omnibuses, looking through the crowds, making contact with people. But he also goes to Foffs, and at Foffs he has this little circle with Mr. Clapp um, and <laughs> friends. Um, and this is really one of the first little spots where you have bohemia or bohemianism coming to America. So you have people who are poets, actresses, uh, you have the guy who, re who writes The Hashish Eater. Um, it's a very sort of interesting crew. And one of the subsets of this little group that gathers around the table is the Fred Gray Association. And Fred Gray was a medical student, but it seems that anyone who was an associate of his was this little homosexual sort of side group that was part of that alt scene at Foffs. So it really is this, this very interesting space. And Whitman, Whitman was part of that crew. And it's, it's interesting because I don't know that he was really truly respected or known for what he was going to become fully at that point. Um, was this yeah. known, like the, was this common knowledge that this like group of bohemians hung out basically just north of Bleecker Street on Broadway? <laughs> I, don't, I don't think it was, and Karen can always step in and, and correct me, but I don't think it was very widely known. This was just sort of a, a small coterie of people that all happened to be interested in things that weren't sort of of the general public. Um, you had people like Edwin Booth, the famous actor, um, mm -hmm. relative of John Wilkes Booth, who was part of that circle as well. We but have it, an entire episode yeah. on Edwin <laughs> Booth. <laughs> yes. That's awesome. Um, yeah, so Fofs is, is really worth um, recognizing in some way because it's actually still there. That's the problem with Walt Whitman in New York and in Brooklyn in particular is that so many things that denote or that give us a tangible reminder of Whitman are gone. 
Yeah, I, I should add that these, these folks here are going to help kind of put Walt Whitman, we hope, back on the map in terms of like there are a lot of pl for these places that have since been forgotten or un unmarked. And so Foss is one of these places that um, it, we are hoping that something is going to uh, yes. mark this place and its historical importance, right? And when you say something, you're looking for like a plaque? We're or? looking for a plaque, yes. And we're hoping, uh, I know the Greenwich Village Society for Historic Preservation has already been helping us. Uh, the Walt Whitman Initiative is the group uh, that Karen and I belong to and Jason has helped out with as well, trying to recognize in a tangible way all of these Walt Whitman sites. Uh, and will that lead to a designation for the building? Any kind of protection for the building? Uh, we haven't talked about actually designating this building, but there is there is a building that we have talked about <laughs> yeah, designating. Well, yes, in fact, this is what I was leading to that. This is really kind of the, the big project that yes. I think we're all trying to put energy behind, and that is this uh, only existing home on, on Ryerson Street near the Brooklyn Navy Yard. Yes. I okay. bet a lot of people know Ryerson Street here, yeah. right? Like, it's a good it's crowd. It's not that far from yeah. here. Right. So uh, why specifically is this, like, just, and just looking right. at New York City history, no, just looking at American history, why is this so important to turn into a protected place? Well, it looks deceptively modest, I will say. And it's, it's what is the cultural content that you can go stand on the street and look at that space, look at that second floor window where Walt Whitman himself lived with his brother in that room looking out on Brooklyn and looking out on the world from that exact spot. That is something that if this building is demolished as development continues to push into this neighborhood, we will lose the one residence left of Walt Whitman in this entire city. And he lived in more than 30 different places in Brooklyn and Manhattan. I, when I heard that this house existed and what its significance was in the summer of 2016, the LGBT sites project, I was floored. I could not believe that New York has not done what most cities would do. Uh, Chicago, Carl Sandburg, he lived in a house for maybe two years. They landmark it, they put up a plaque. I mean, it's a pretty obvious thing to do. Here, this house sits completely unrecognized in any official way. So, and Brad, to put this back in our story today, yep. so he was living here in 1855. Yes. Well, he would, so he would leave this house, and that's when he was walking along the street all the way to the Rum Brothers print shop to set the type. Yes. <laughs> Making the trek between you, these two important sites. You know, and just to add here, I bring, I've been bringing students to this house since 2001, mm -hmm. and I think the reason that it should stand and people should know it is when you look at this, you realize that poetry starts anywhere. Yes. Right? Like, this is a humble home. This is not like going to Lenox Mass and seeing Hawthorne's mansion up there. Right, right. This or is a regular nice. house where Walt Whitman mm -hmm. wrote the cultural declaration of independence of this country. Right. And I feel like it's a lesson just to look at that house. What's, so. what's the process? I mean, how do you landmark something like this. I mean, what, well, I'll tell what, you, it's a challenge. Yes. Uh -huh. <laughs> um, if any of you in the room have been following the saga of this, we have been working now for well over a year to try to get the Landmarks Commission to see that its own authorizing rules allow them to designate something that's a cultural or historical landmark, not something that's architecturally pure. So we're really trying to make that case. And they have a problem because the building was altered. There's a third floor that's been added. 
1891, mm. and also just the general exterior condition with the siding and such. What we're trying to show is that the humble nature of this house, the fact that this was a row of what was called mechanics houses, people who were working down in the Navy Yard, this is a humble starting point. As Karen said, poetry can start anywhere. This is not Emerson's manse. Uh, this is the new American poetry, which is starting in the streets. It is an urban poetry rather than something from a, a secluded rural glade. So that's part of the story, and that's what we're trying to convey to the Landmarks Commission is... Brad, is there anything that the listeners of the Bowery Boys can do to help in this effort? Yes, absolutely. So we do have a change.org petition. So if you go to change.org and you search for Walt Whitman petition, you will find it. Please sign it. We are just shy of 4,000 signatories right now, and we are hoping to get to 5,000 soon. So All right, you could good. use your help. Good luck. And I, I, did want to, I did want to quickly note that we have a letter here, and it's important to note this and thank some key people, including uh, the council speaker, Corey Johnson, the majority leader, Lori Cumbo, and Daniel Drom, who's the head of the LGBT caucus and all the members, because they signed this letter and sent it to the Landmarks Commission asking for this site to be landmarked. And I think, I think it's important that we get this building landmarked in time for Walt Whitman's 200th birthday. That's right. Hey, we have a couple months. So you have like kind of one more proposal, I believe. We mentioned uh, the Rome Brothers printer, where, of course, he worked on Leaves of Grass and walked between the Ryerson yes. and the Rome Brothers. Uh, but there's nothing, like, where specifically is that at? How would you be able to find that location? So you want to look for the High Street subway stop right off of Cadman Plaza. And they're, they're used to, yes, <laughs> they're, it's a lovely site. <laughs> it's enchanting. Um, <laughs> Do people know this spot? Right, you see where it is, yeah. So on this site stood a small building that was the Rome Brothers print shop, and it was demolished over the protests of people like Allen Ginsberg and Marianne Moore, Arthur Miller, E.E. E. Cummings, who fought for this back in the 60s and sadly lost. Yeah. Um, but we are working right now to put up a monument of sorts that will make clear to people this is the place where Leaves of Grass was first published so that there's a sense of that accomplishment and what it means to Brooklyn. We actually have a, a Pratt design student doing the, the monument, which will look like a printer's table and have mm. printing implements so uh, teachers can bring their students there to learn something about like the hands-on oh, wow. printing culture. Oh, We're cool. really excited about it. And you all can learn more about it at the Whitman, Whitman Initiative website. Right. So tell mm. us a little bit more about the Whitman Bicentennial. Like, when is it kickoff? And it kicks off good. now. We're here. Yeah, I this know. Is it. <laughs> you guys did it. You're Woo! at the kickoff. <laughs> we kicked it off. You kicked it off, exactly. Oh this gosh. is the first Whitman this event of the year. This is the first big event, yes. But you have a big calendar. They're all posted on your website. Mm -hmm. Yes, if people go to the Whitman Initiative website, there's a big calendar of events. There's dozens and dozens of events up and down the East Coast. Philadelphia, Lots of stuff DC, here in New York, New York Brooklyn. New Orleans. Um, yeah. We can't even begin to tell you. You just have to go to the site and see it. Uh, but it is all up there under the Whitman 2019 Consortium. 
Fantastic. And we should also mention one of the organizations taking part in this, of course, is the Brooklyn Historical Society. Um, they have two different Whitman in Brooklyn exhibits, one at their Dumbo location and one up at the main one in Brooklyn Heights. A, a new exhibit is actually opening up in March called On the Queer Waterfronts, uh, and Whitman is part of that. I thought maybe we should kind of wrap up here with uh, one final reading. This time, I think, Jason, you'll be joined by Brad and Karen here. We had this Peter, Paul, and Mary idea. <laughs> <laughs> oh, by the way, I don't, we didn't really... We didn't talk about the t-shirts. We didn't talk about the t-shirts, oh, yeah. by the way. This is, that, these are all, these are from Brooklyn Poets. Jason's Brooklyn Poets, mine also, and... Brad is wearing the entire leaves of grass, right, on, yes. on his shirt. So. Which These edition? people are truly Whitmaniacs, okay, <laughs> right here. And I guess on that note, we will close out with the last words of Song of Myself, which are really resonant, and we will take turns reading it. So, Perhaps I might tell more. Outlines. I plead for my brothers and sisters. Do you see, oh my brothers and sisters, it is not chaos or death. It is form and union and plan. It is eternal life. It is happiness. The past and present wilt. I have filled them and emptied them and proceed to fill my next fold of the future. Listener up there, hear you. What have you to confide in to me? Look in my face while I snuff the sidle of evening. Talk honestly, for no one else hears you, and I stay only a minute longer. Do I contradict myself? Very well, then. I contradict myself. I am large. I contain multitudes. I concentrate toward them that are nigh. I wait on the door slab. Who has done his day's work and will soonest be through with his supper? Who wishes to walk with me? Will you speak before I am gone? Will you prove already too late? The spotted hawk swoops by and accuses me. He complains of my gab and my loitering. I, too, am not a bit tamed. I, too, am untranslatable. I sound my barbaric yawp over the roofs of the world. The last scud of day holds back for me. It flings my likeness after the rest, and true as any on the shadowed wilds, it coaxes me to the vapor and the dusk. I depart as air. I shake my white locks at the runaway sun. I effuse my flesh in eddies and drift it in lacy jags. I bequeath myself to the dirt to grow from the grass I love. If you want me again, look for me under your boot soles. You will hardly know who I am or what I mean, but I shall be good health to you nevertheless and filter and fiber your blood. Failing to fetch me at first, keep encouraged. Missing me one place, search another. I stop somewhere waiting for you. Thank you. Thank you. Let's hear it for Karen Carboner, 
Brad Vogel, and Jason Koo. Thank you so much. Um, so thank you very much for, for joining us, for being here. Have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. See you real soon. Bye-bye.